Today and uh, next week, I'm going to try turning these devotions into something more like a podcast. I've um, failed to keep them to 10 minutes. When I asked for feedback, some of you said, um, you know, take, take more time. Take all the time you need. Well, maybe not that, but uh, we're going to try a longer form. Um, and I'm still trying to find my voice on this. So um, anyway, we have a couple longer lectures coming up. These are still on the 100 uh, most important people, events, and ideas of the last 2,000 years. And today we arrive at Constantine the Great, who is truly one of the pivotal players in world history. Dan Brown, uh, the author of The Da Vinci Code and some other novels, has some, some crazy ideas about Constantine and his influence. He suggests, among other things, that uh, Constantine is the one who came up with the idea that Jesus was God and sort of forced this idea um, uh, at the Council of Nicaea and got it passed by the bishops with a very close vote. Um, <laughs> no, no, that's not uh, the way it happened at all. The idea that Jesus was God is clear in the New Testament, and the vote that Constantine is referring to uh, ended up being 316 to 2. Uh, I'm not sure that really is close, but he can sell books, I'll say that, and uh, it's just that his ideas don't line up with um, with history. Constantine is not as important as Dan Brown would suggest, um, but he is very important. Constantine uh, unites the Roman Empire, maybe say reunites it. He, he moves it from being uh, really pagan and sets it on a trajectory to be Christian. Uh, he turns a small ancient Greek town uh, named Byzantium um, the border of uh, intersection of Asia and, and Europe. He turns that into uh, Constantinople, which is now modern-day Istanbul. Uh, and in doing so, he sets up uh, uh, that city as really the city in the East for hundreds of years. There are all kinds of reasons why Constantine is important. In this um, episode number seven, we are going to look at three events and set up a fourth. So before we do that, let me say just a few things by way of setup. Um, you need to understand Constantine is complicated. Uh, we're all complicated. Uh, for starters, his faith is complicated. Uh, there's a sense in which talking about and analyzing the faith of, of anyone is guesswork. We obviously end up, we don't know other people's hearts. We leave all of this to God to decide. But it's worth noting that assessing the faith of political figures is especially complicated. And assessing the faith of political leaders 1,700 years after they died is even more complicated still. Um, would any of you like to offer a definitive assessment of the faith of recent U.S. presidents? Uh, what would you say about the faith of, of Bill Clinton or of George Bush or of Obama or of Trump? I mean, in different ways. All of these men have voiced some type of faith in Christ, or at least tried to publicly line up with the church. And all kinds of claims are made about their faith by other people. Um, so, but it's not clear uh, in some cases where their faith actually resides. So imagine the challenge of trying to make uh, these kind of assessments 1,700 years later. Some people will say Constantine is, you know, almost part of the Trinity. He's so, Eusebius is going to be so excited about Constantine and his faith. And others are going to say Constantine never becomes a Christian. Um, so you'll read both of those things in, in the literature. 
Uh, I am among those who are troubled uh, or disappointed by some of the things that Constantine says and does in terms of faith. Um, on the one hand, he does some nice things. I mean, he, he, he ends the banishment of Christianity. He ends gladiator games. He outlaws infanticide. He sets up some rights for slaves. Um, nothing that would get anybody's attention today, but he was way ahead of his time. Uh, he uses state money to care for the poor during famines. There's a number of things that you can say Constantine does that um, speak well of him or of his faith. Uh, at the same time, he does some other things. He'll side with Arius, the wrong side, in a discussion about Christ's deity. Uh, he puts off baptism uh, until the very end of his life because he believes in baptismal regeneration, uh, sort of believes that baptism, the water of baptism, really sort of washes away sins. And he wants to, you know, keep on sinning until the end. Believes in his defense that as emperor, there are things that he has to do decisions he has to make that are not uh, going to line up well with uh, faith. He has a, his wife and a child killed. I mean, there's a lot of things about Constantine that you make, make you go, hmm, not exactly following the Sermon on the Mount. So it's complicated. Um, I am among those who find his faith disappointing in some ways, but believe that he was uh, sincere in his decision to follow Christ. Uh, it's also, his influence is complicated. Um, so before Constantine comes along, declaring your faith in Christ is going to cost you something. So you were unlikely to do it halfway. After Constantine makes it legal to be a Christian, uh, and then later still, when, when being a Christian was not only not bad, but could be a good thing, could actually help, help you gain some political power. Well, the church is going to fill up with people who uh, may or may not be willing to count the cost. Uh, they may or may not be sincere in their faith. And so uh, there is a whole Constantinization of the church that is formalizing it in ways that uh, are not, many would say, are not good. It's sort of the beginning of the end of the church. And so uh, his, influence, um, his influence is complicated in that sense. Um, so just by way of setup, Constantine's complicated. Secondly, just know that he's, he's quite an extraordinary leader. Uh, as we move into the fourth century, the Roman Empire is divided into um, four quadrants. Um, as I mentioned in the first inflection point, talking about Rome is complicated because some form of Rome is a big player for almost a thousand years. And at various times, it's a kingdom, and then it's an empire, and then it's a republic. And those are very different entities, and they, they act very differently. Uh, one joke notes that by the time we get to the Holy Roman Emperor, excuse me, by the time we get to the Holy Roman Empire, uh, it is not holy, it's not Roman, and it's not an empire. Um, so you have to work hard to keep your Romes in order. Uh, in any event, in the fourth century, Western Rome is divided into four zones. This had been done because there had been all these crises in the third century. Um, Germanic groups were attacking in the north, and there were other groups attacking from the east. And then you have all these, um, all these coups happening internally, all these military leaders that would rise up as soldiers, gain power, and then uh, stage a coup. And then uh, a couple of years later, someone had staged a coup against them. And so it's been unstable, and in uh, 284, 
an emperor, Diocletian, comes into power. And he's actually going to hold on to power for a couple decades, largely by dividing uh, Western Rome into four zones. And each of these uh, zones is going to have a leader, their own leader. Uh, two of them are going to be uh, Augusts. So Augustus, uh, two are going to be Augusts, which are senior leaders, and two are going to be Caesars. And when the August one dies and the Caesar is appointed to be the August, and then he has got to appoint a new Caesar. And so this, this helped keep things in line, but it's not going to work as Constantine comes along. So Constantine's dad, Constantinius, was one of the four leaders of the Western part of the Roman Empire. In fact, he was an Augustus and he was very effective, very popular, a good leader. Uh, and, and as uh, the son of this prominent leader, Constantine trains in the military and, uh, and is, gets the best training and is already a proven, capable, brave, battle-hardened fighter by the time his dad dies. And his, the troops, his troops declare Constantine to be the new uh, Augustus. But this is not supposed to be the way it works. This is not the way it happens. But for various reasons, it does happen this way, in part because in the eastern half of the Western uh, Empire, there's a, a guy named Maxenius uh, who recognizes Constantine as the Augustus. Uh, and he does this because he's the son of an Augustus and he's got his own reasons for wanting to be recognized himself. So it, it all gets very complicated. Suffice it to say, after a number of years of both there being Constantine in the western part of the Western Empire and uh, Maxentius in the eastern part of the Western Empire, um, th there it becomes obvious these two cannot coexist. And so a big battle is going to emerge and this is one of the, the four events I want to talk about. It's, uh, there's a vision and, and a battle. And these are, these are true inflection points. So October of 312, after the various scuffles uh, and, and power plays have been going on that I just talked about, uh, Constantine and Maxentius are, are going to fight. And Constantine has moved about 40,000 troops over the Alps and towards Rome to challenge Maxentius for control of the West. Uh, on the 27th, so the night before the battle, Constantine has a vision in which um, a heavenly figure tells him to conquer under the banner of the cross, conquer under this sign. So there's actually a couple different accounts of this. The reports uh, are not directly from Constantine. There's a little bit of confusion. One of the, one of the key players in this is uh, in stories about Constantine and, and following is Eusebius. Uh, and there's a couple Eusebiuses just to make it even more confusing. But one of the Eusebiuses is a, is a historian. And Constantine serves as his patron and and. Uh, is going to submit to an interview with Eusebius. Eusebius will write a book about Constantine. Um, and this vision gets reported in that book, but uh, it, it appears elsewhere as well. But so Jesus uh, appears to Constantine in the sky. It's not clear if the claim is that this is a dream 
uh, that he's asleep or this is a, a vision like a but um, Constantine has some sort of uh, event and he sees a heavenly figure telling him to conquer under this sign and by some uh, retellings it's the cross this is what I heard initially and so when Constantine wakes up he tells his troops to paint a red cross on their shield uh, others a report, I think it's probably more accurate, that it's a Christogram, which is sort of an overlay of two Greek letters, Chi and Rho, the first two letters in spelling the name Christ, the Greek uh, word for Messiah. Um, so but in any event, Constantine, who's a pagan at this point, has some sort of vision in which he's told that under this symbol, he will conquer. And so he has his troops paint something on their shield, and the next day, he goes on to defeat Maxentius at the Battle of Milvian Bridge. Uh, when Maxentius falls off of the bridge or somehow drowns, and at this point, Constantine becomes the sole ruler of the West. It's, it's quite a battle. Most battles, uh, in the end, only change outcomes for a few days or a few decades. Some change a lot. Um, given that this was a battle over Rome, and that it's a battle between a, a Christian, a very much a minority faith at this time, um, and a pagan. <laughs> and this is going to sort of uh, affect the trajectory for the next thousand years. This is a very significant battle. Uh, military historians study this, and, and among other things, they wonder why in the world Maxentius gave up his huge advantages he was behind uh, the wall. He comes down to fight uh, on a plane. He comes down to fight Constantine. He takes a, a position in which he's got his back to a river, which is a really bad thing to do. It blocks his retreat. He's going to end up drowning. So um, anyway, it's, it's all fascinating. This battle is huge. So after the battle, not long after the battle, Constantine, um, and I'm getting ahead of myself, but Constantine will meet with... Uh, Iconius, who is the leader of the eastern half of the Roman Empire, uh, and they'll form a truce, and Lyconius will even seal it by um, marrying Constantine's sister. They're not going to trust each other, and that will lead to ongoing fights uh, between uh, Constantine and Lyconius, uh, at which point Constantine is going to be in control of everything. He's eventually going to defeat 324. He's going to have defeated everybody and he'll be the sole ruler. So the first thing to know is that um, the first big pivot point related to Constantine is this vision in battle. The second uh, is the Edict of Milan. So in 313, Constantine gets together, uh, still with Lyconius, this is before he deposes him, and the two of them together issue an Edict of Toleration, which said, that Christianity was no longer an illicit religion. Now, some people think that what Constantine does at this point is he makes Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. That's, that's not what happens. It won't happen for a number of years. I think Constantine's dead by the time uh, that it actually happens. But for 300 years, Christianity has been an illegal uh, faith. And, uh, and now it joins the lists the list of licit. It's not an illicit religion anymore. It's now a licit religion. And this is this is going to change so much. Um, and, and 
things are going to change profoundly. So Constantine is now uh, in charge. He is the Christian leader. Being a Christian is not illegal. He's the Christian leader of a pagan country. And he's going to move slowly um, to sort of uh, push back paganism. And there's a lot to suggest that he sort of holds on to the worship of the sun, uh, the S-U-N, not the S-O-N, for a while. Perhaps it could be that he's just moving slowly to try and uh, not get forced out of power before he leads to a pretty profound um, rise of the Christian faith in Rome. Uh, so by the end of his reign, by the way, some will say as, as many as 40% of uh, the Roman Empire, some will say higher, you know, 80 or 90%, but but I think that's very inflated. But uh, the, the important point to know is that Constantine takes over, and then he issues this Edict of Milan in 313. Uh, and then a, a third big thing that the last thing we'll look at uh, today, the third big thing that Constantine does is that he establishes Constantinople as his capital. Um, so he's now got control of everything uh, and he wants to set up a capital. Uh, and he chooses this um, small ancient Greek city called Byzantium. Um, and um, like Greek leaders of the past, he names it after himself, Constantinople. Again, today it's Istanbul, but um, he called it Constantinople. And now some are surprised that he didn't choose Rome. Um, but if you've been to Constantinople, uh, excuse me, Istanbul, um, you're not that surprised. In Istanbul is an amazing city. Uh, I mean, it's amazing geographically, part of it's in, in Asia, part of it's in Europe, but it's just remarkable in so many ways. Rome was old, uh, it was pagan, it was established, it had lots of pagan buildings, uh, and, and the people thought as pagans, and, and Constantine wants to make changes. And so he looks east and East is actually where the money is, and East is where there are more people. East puts him close to his enemies, which is important thing, so he can watch his enemies. East has more artists and thinkers. It has more key cities. And so he is, um, he is going to build his capital in Constantinople. And, um, and then uh, he will um, have the, the Council of Nicaea, uh, right outside of Constantinople, he's still building the city. And so Nicaea is where he's got a summer home. And so when, when they convene, and this is what we're going to look at in inflection point number eight, when they convene the bishops who have been, again, got to think about how amazing this is. These, these bishops, 300 of them have been persecuted. Some of them show up at this council uh, as guests of the emperor, uh, their way paid by the state. Some of them show up blind, they're deformed, they've been in prison, they've been persecuted their entire life, and now they are guests of the emperor. But he is going to convene this council. And that's the, the fourth big thing with Constantine that I want us to look at. But um, that's going to come up um, next week. So there's other things about Constantine, his mother, Helena, um, you hear a little bit about. She goes to Israel uh, on a pilgrimage and, and supposedly... <laughs> finds pieces of the cross, um, brings them back. But in the Middle Ages, they say you could probably build a small uh, town with all these splinters of the cross that uh, various people supposedly had. 
but she will, in fact, um, use uh, her son's money to build uh, churches, a church in Bethlehem, uh, and then a church in Jerusalem, Church of the Holy Sepulcher, uh, Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. So these will be built by Constantine. Um, and uh, again, there's more that could be said about him. He's an amazing leader. He changes the world in pretty profound ways. And we're going to see as he uh, presides at the Council of Nicaea next when we go to uh, inflection point number eight.